what do we grab? What do you grab? Uh, some residents, as the waves of flame were devouring house after house and block after block, some of those residents, as they got the warning, had maybe 15 minutes to get out. Some witnesses, though, said it was closer to 15 seconds. What do you grab? Right? What do you grab on your way out? And you don't know if you're coming back. Let me read you some examples here, some things as they unfolded. A musician opted for the violin. A golfer grabbed his clubs. A bride-to-be remembered her dress. Many dive for the practical, toiletries and clothes. Others fumbled through boxes and old photo albums, desperate to save memories. One woman grabbed diapers, wipes, and clothes for her kids, but nothing for herself. An 82-year-old woman grabbed her walker and, of all things, a hairbrush, but forgot her husband's thyroid medication. As Tanya Whitaker, 31, sat with her kids on a blanket in the corner of the Petaluma Community Center shelter, her voice quivered as she went down a list of things that could be currently in flames, sonograms. The big new bike her older son recently got for his seventh birthday and all of his unopened presents. At least one man, 57-year-old Michael Dornbach, died, refusing to leave something behind. I'm not leaving without my truck, Dornbach told his nephew who begged him to flee without the vehicle. Crises tend to reveal what we value. Um, big events have a way of exposing our priorities. But not just exposing our priorities, sometimes big events can reshape them, right? You go through a big thing and it has a way of changing you. You're not the same on the other side of that thing, whatever it, it may be. Well, for the... Today and the next few Sundays, we're going to get into a little mini-series, a post-Easter mini-series grappling with some passages in the Gospels and some other texts as well that in light of the resurrection make a lot of sense. But if you take the resurrection out, they don't make any sense at all, okay? So it, it's because of this big event, you know, it's because of this big event, they make all the sense in the world. They fit. They resonate. Uh, and they can't help but resonate given what's happened, given what's really, really happened in light of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Mark chapter 14. This is one of those texts. In fact, it was one, just to be honest, I was reading back during the Lent season and my Lenten readings, and I moved and I hit this passage one day, and I was like, this is crazy. Jesus, what are you saying? It's, it's one of those passages that doesn't make any sense outside of the reality of who He is. Mark 14, verses 3 through 9, if you're trying to find that, that's the, the second book in the New Testament, the second of our four Gospels, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke and John. Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, just to kind of set the stage here, 
This is the Saturday just before what's oftentimes referred to as Holy Week. So this is the day before Palm Sunday is when this happens, okay? So things are moving at a pretty good clip and coming to a dramatic head, all right? So Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. And while he, this is Jesus, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And he scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And it's being told again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this moment we have here on this Sunday after, first Sunday after Easter. As far as resurrection realities go, absolutely nothing has changed since that first Easter morning. All that broke forth, all that happened, all that was made clear, all that was revealed, the light that broke into the world, the songs that rightly began to be sung, nothing has changed. Everything changed from the day before, but from that Sunday forward, nothing has changed. And we really want to understand what in the world is going on here just about a week before that all happened. You said some puzzling things, some striking things, and we need to understand, and we pray that you would give us the grace to do that. And then, not just that our curiosity would be satisfied, but our lives would be different. We pray this in your name. Amen. Near-death experiences can totally transform a person in seconds says scientist. That's a, a headline from a recent Newsweek piece. All right, let me read that again. Near-death experiences can totally transform a person in seconds, says scientist. Uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson, a specialist in psychiatry and neurobehavioral science at UVA, has been studying these NDEs, near-death experiences, for the last 40 years. Let me read you an excerpt from the, the piece. As a psychiatrist, these are his words within the course of an interview. As a psychiatrist, this is the most fascinating aspect to me because I make my living trying to help people change their lives. That's a very difficult thing to do. But here's an experience that in a few seconds can totally transform someone's attitudes, values, beliefs, and behavior. They typically make people more spiritual, if I can use that word, 
They make them more compassionate, more caring, more altruistic, and they become much less interested in physical things and material goods and power, prestige, fame, and competition. This does not go away with time. I've talked to people in their 90s who had the experience as teenagers, and they say it's like it happened yesterday, that they've never been able to go back to their old life. This is often a comfort to them, but often it can be a problem as well. I've seen marriages break up because the spouse couldn't tolerate the change. I've seen career military people or policemen who could not tolerate the idea of hurting someone after their near-death experience change careers. I've seen cutthroat businessmen who decided that competition was silly after a near-death experience change careers, and they typically go into helping professions, medical care, teaching, social work, clergy, something like that. So, the idea is that there's documented change that comes to people when they have an up-close and personal brush with death. Okay? You get the idea. That, that's, that's what we're working with here. There's clear documented evidence that people go through, can go through a lot of change when they have an up-close and personal experience with death. You see something similar here with the resurrection, but far more. It goes far, far deeper because here we're not looking at just a recounting of an event or an, a hearkening back to an experience that somehow you've had at some point in, in your life, however dramatic it may be, but rather with the resurrection of Jesus, we're talking about a power that has been unleashed into the world. We're talking about the, the, the opening of the door that allows for dramatic life transformation for everyone. We're talking about something that moves right into the gravitational control center of your life. We're talking here about something that touches the devotion of our hearts. And that's really what this text is getting at. This text is, is showing us that the resurrection of Jesus transforms the very devotion of our hearts. How so? Well, let's talk about in th in, from three angles. The first thing being the very nature of our devotion. What, what are we talking about there? Uh, the second thing has to do with the extent of our devotion. And the third has to do with the, the focus, the focus of our devotion. So the first thing is the nature of it. Now, bear with me. Uh, this is the big backdrop, the context behind the context of what Jesus is getting at here. This text is really about our devotion. It's about, if I can put another word on it, worship. It is really what this passage here from Mark 14 is really driving at. And it's absolutely vital that we consider this. This is actually applicable. Bear with me, but I'm very serious. This is application for us, whether you're a Christian or not. I'll explain that in just a second. This idea of devotion and worship has something to do for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, okay? Now, why do I say that? The reality of worship. What are we talking about, we, we, this word worship? But just boiling it down to its simplest definition, just getting right down into it. We're talking about where your trust is. 
We're talking about where your, where your confidence is, where your, who or what your hope is in, uh, what you're counting on, where your attention is ultimately focused, what you're willing to sacrifice for. That's really about worship. And when you think about it in those terms, that's applicable to everyone. Everyone is a worshiper, whether you're in a sanctuary or not, whether you're a Christian or not, to be a human being, to be alive, is to be a worshiper. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. This is essential to our humanity. And it doesn't go away just because of the fall. If you, well, bear with me. I'm going to turn now to Ecclesiastes. Keep your thumb here in, um, in Mark. I'm in Ecclesiastes, and if you want to try and find that, that's after the Psalms and after Proverbs. You hit this book called Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's this striking statement that the author makes. Chapter 3, verse 11, He, that is God, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What the author is getting at is this. We are all looking. We are all longing. And ultimately, we are all going to land on something. We're going to worship. Again, it's fundamental to our humanity, every man, woman, and child. So that being the case, that given the reality of worship and how fundamental this is to what it means to, to be human, you understand there's a lot of importance then to then thinking this through. Well, okay, if who or what am I worshiping? That, that might be worth our considering because... When you really delve down into this, worship directs your life. It's like the navigational system of your soul. It, it, it determines your goals and your, your priorities. It, it, it drives how you invest, if I can put it that way, your time, your energy, your money. In fact, if you want to know what your God really is, take a look at your time and your energy, and your money, and you trace it back, and you just found your God. Worship directs our lives. It also shapes our hearts. Uh, what we revere, we come to resemble. Now, think about that. We become like what we worship. We become like who or what we worship. What we revere, we come to resemble. Whatever that may be. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Very sobering words here on, on this point. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. 
those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And it's because of that, as you keep reading through the psalm, the author of the psalm then throws down the gauntlet with a serious warning. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. You know, given what he's just said about the danger and the reality that we come to resemble what we revere, that imitation follows adoration. We become like what we worship. In view of that, the psalmist pleads with the people, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. This is the beginning. This is a big picture. This is the, the backdrop. Like I said, this is the, the foundation for Mark 14. We're getting to that here in just a second because the whole text is about worship. It's, it's about adoration. It's about devotion. Talking about the nature of of all of this. And this this is not just some theoretical construct. This has consequences. Let me bring it down from 10,000 feet now to 10. A quote here from N.T. Wright, uh, a book of his called Surprised by Hope. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. And here he gives three examples, three very contemporary examples. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat others, other people, as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat others, people, as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. You hear what he's saying? Again, this this idea, this concept of devotion is not just some theoretical thing. It is not just academic. It is incredibly practical. We become like what we worship, and we are all worshipers. That begs a lot of questions, doesn't it? Who or what is in the control center? Who or what is in the control center? So when we say the resurrection of Jesus transforms the devotion of our hearts, that's a really significant statement, given how significant this concept of worship is. All right, now let's go down to the text. That was a huge prelude <laughs> to, to getting into Mark 14, okay? Okay. Um, but but now let's let's go there because now we're not we're shifting from the nature of devotion to the extent of it. How far should we go? How far should we go? Well, let's look at it. Mark chapter fourteen, verse three. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask 
poured it over his head. How far? What do we know of this woman? What does she do? What does Jesus say about what she does? Those are really important questions to, to delve into as we look at this passage. So let's just start with the facts on the ground. What we know, what we can see, what we can discern here. So who is this? Who is this woman? Well, she's not named in Mark's account nor in Matthew's account, but in John's account, she is named. You know who this is? This is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, living there in Bethany. So, okay, with that in mind, who is this woman? We know that she is a disciple of Jesus, kind of radical in those days. She is a disciple of Jesus. She is a faithful student of His teaching. One more thing. She's deeply devoted to Him. She's a witness. She's a witness of the revival, the resuscitation of her brother who was once dead, Lazarus. This is very personal to her, this man Jesus. And this is coming just a few days after that event. All very, very fresh in her mind. All right, so that's who she is. When is this? When is it? I already said this is a Saturday, just prior to the Holy Week. Jesus alludes to that in speaking of the fact that what she has done here is anointing him, preparing him for his burial, which of course implies what? His death, the crucifixion. He also alludes to, if you think about it, it's implied here, his resurrection, because he speaks of this gospel this good news that's going to be proclaimed and spread throughout the world. And so what in essence he's saying here is, based on what she knows, what she has done is a good and beautiful thing. Oh, but there's so much she doesn't even know. His death and resurrection, and how much more so given those realities what she has done for him is so good and so beautiful and so pleasing to him. Her response, of course, is so memorable. She, he says this for, forever. It's going to be recounted and, and told. Uh, what does she have? What does she have on hand? An alabaster flask. Uh, that's a container that was often used in those days to... To, well, to hold uh, precious liquid that, that wanted, you wanted to preserve it and keep it safe. That kind of material in a container, that would have been a precious and rare thing in and of itself, just the container. It's filled with what? An insanely valuable ointment, oil, that based on what we know of the time would have been imported either from India or the area we know today as Saudi Arabia. It's worth roughly a year's worth of an ordinary laborer's wages. This flask filled with this oil was likely a precious family heirloom. And for whatever reason, Mary has charge of it. So that's what she has in hand. 
What does she do with it? Well, in all three accounts, Matthew and Mark and John, she breaks it. She breaks it and pours it out over Jesus' head. Estimates of the amount here, when you compare the accounts, somewhere between 12 and 16 ounces. So take a pretty good size uh, coffee mug and imagine that amount of this aromatic perfume, this ointment, this oil, poured out upon Jesus' head such that it flows down on His feet, fills the room with its aroma, and she then, by the way, you look at John's account, takes her hair and wipes his feet with it. What a scene. What a scene. I mean, you've got the audio, the visual, you can, something you can smell. So much is, is going on here. This is a beautifully humble, whole life expression of devotion that Mary is giving to her Savior. And Jesus says, it is beautiful. Now, just let this settle in. Just let the scene settle in. What happens? As we wrestle with this question for just a moment, the extent of our devotion. Just let it settle in. What you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're smelling, and all the questions that this stirs up. The extent of our devotion. What does Jesus do? What is He do? From Mary's vantage point, even with what little she knows, she knows a lot, but what, comparatively speaking, little she knows, she pours out the most important thing in her life for the sake of the one who will pour out His life for her. What is Jesus do? How much is too much? Any accountants in the room? CPAs? Financial planners? When is too much? How far is too far? You got a group of men in the room who say she has gone too far. We'll get to that in a minute. Because the audit doesn't work the way they think. How much is too much? How far is too far? Note, Jesus condemns who? He rebukes who? Not her. He commends her for what she has done. So what is it we are to do? Can I just say figuratively? We are to take the flask, break it, and pour it out. That's what we're to do. Now, what's your flask? You're to take the flask, break it, and pour it out. What's the flask? 
What's the flask? What would it mean? It means surrendering your life. It means entrusting your future. Think of what she's doing, right, from a practical standpoint. Entrusting her future, entrusting our future to Him. Letting Him be our security, our identity. Allowing no other rivals, brooking no other competitors, Letting Jesus be our security, Jesus being our identity. Letting Him have the first and final say on all matters pertaining to our relationships, our work, our careers, our plans, our priorities, our politics our conflicts, our loves, our hates, all of it. Letting Jesus have absolute first and final say on everything, on absolutely everything. This is what it means to say that His resurrection transforms the devotion of our hearts. His resurrection transforms the devotion of our hearts as we simply see just the extent of it, the extent of the devotion of our hearts given over to Him. Now, that takes us to the third point, though, because this text doesn't just speak of the the extent, it also tells us something of the focus, the direction of our devotion as well. I said we needed to get into this snipping, sniping, sniping from the, the, the guys who are, are watching all this unfold. And we really need to get delve into that because it's very important that we do. And this really takes us into the heart of the devotion that we, that we need to consider here. So let me go back and read verses 3 through 7. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. What on earth is going on here? I mean, it seems like, don't these guys have a point? I mean, be honest. I'm not going to do a show of hands. I think I get pretty much all show. Those of you who raise your hand would be honest. The rest of you are being dishonest. Everyone agrees here. These guys have a point. And Jesus rebukes the point. (laughs) And there goes Jesus again. right? Um, Shaking our snow globe. Uh, Let's be clear. Jesus, in rebuking these men, and by the way, when you compare the accounts, it's the disciples, and Judas seems to be the one speaking the loudest among them. Keep that in mind to the degree you're sympathetic with what they're saying, okay? Okay. 
they are, in, in Jesus' rebuking what they're saying, in no way is he ignoring the plight of the poor. Don't get confused on this point. The, the, there's a text he alludes to here from Deuteronomy 15. When he says, the poor you will always have with you, that's from Deuteronomy 15. If you go back and read the context, it's very clear. It could not be clearer that the, the, the Lord's passion that His people would care for and come alongside for those who lack material means, it could not be made clear there in Deuteronomy 15. And that is, is, is echoes of that all through the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. In no way is Jesus out of line with that. My goodness, He's the speaker of the Scriptures when you really think about it. You think in terms of His own, where He's come from. He's born into poverty. His own ministry, time again, His teaching, never, ever does He speak against the support of the poor. He speaks against flawed agendas and motivations behind that, yes, but never the giving and the support itself. Some of His very miracles you can see, His heart, His burden for those who lack material sustenance. So let's not get bent up around the axle on this crazy idea that somehow Jesus is ignoring the plight of the poor. That's not it at all. Okay, well, if that's not it, then what is it? He's not ignoring the plight of the poor. He's claiming the priority of our service. He's claiming the priority of our lives. He's claiming the priority of any ministry that we would do, quote-unquote, in His name. That's what He's doing here. That's what he's doing. These astonishing words. Put yourself in the room. You're watching this unfold. You, you're there in the house of Simon the leper, obviously a man that Jesus has healed. He was known as a leper. He's been healed. There. You're under his roof. You're at the disciples. You don't know how many others. It's a, it's a dinner of some kind. Mary is there. Maybe Martha. Maybe Lazarus. Yeah, actually Lazarus is there if you read the other accounts. Um, Mary does this crazy thing. The disciples respond in a way that makes sense to them. And then Jesus says, mm, what she has done takes priority over even these good things. What she has done not ruling out those things, don't get confused, but what she has done takes priority and preeminence over even those good things. So, if you stay there in Mark 14 and just turn a page or two to the left, go to Mark 12, uh, we, we are given the, the, the law, Jesus sums up the entirety of God's commands in, in two ways. You can see it in Matthew's gospel, we see it in Mark's as well. In Mark 12, verses 28, well, well, yeah, we'll start in verse 28. You can see this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered, that's Jesus, Jesus answered them well, and asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Okay, so what is he saying? We're to love God 
We're to love our neighbor. But Jesus is saying here, in the company of His disciples, in response to what's happened here that day, He is saying, yes, you are to love God and to love your neighbor, but you're not ready to do the second unless you're pursuing the first. In fact, you can't truly do the second unless you're pursuing the first. And what is it to pursue the first but to love Him? Now, that's a crazy claim, isn't it? That's a thing to say. To serve me is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What a claim. What a claim. If the scribes and teachers of the law had been present, oh, the hissy fit they would have had. Of course, they'd heard it enough by this point anyway. Jesus is saying we are not ready, we are not able to pursue the second unless we are pursuing the, fir the first. So you see how this takes us to the focus of our devotion. Let's imagine you're in a spacecraft for a moment, and you're preparing to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. Pick your craft. Mercury capsule, Gemini capsule, Apollo capsule, space shuttle, SpaceX, I don't care. It's all the same science. When you're coming to the point of your mission is over and you're to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, you have to do it at just the right angle, and there's no wiggle room allowed. Not if you want to make it home. It is absolutely essential that your trajectory, that your glide path be just right, lest you burn up in the earth's atmosphere because of the heat and the friction and all of that. It's absolutely essential. So, when you're approaching that point of, of coming home, re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, it's why the pilot in the ship and the folks on the ground are intensely concentrating on making sure all the course corrections necessary have been done so that your mission can actually be a success. The course corrections are absolutely essential. Friends, we need course corrections. That's what Jesus is saying here. We are in desperate need of course corrections when it comes to even service in His name. Whatever service, whatever ministry, whatever that may be, public or private, out in the marketplace or just at home, whatever it may be. I mean, you can see how, how easily messed up we get here. I mean, you've got the disciples on the one hand. who see that Jesus and the disciples are looking at the same thing. They've heard the same thing, they've seen the same thing, they can smell the same thing, and the disciples say, this, their assessment, wasteful. Jesus is beautiful. You can't get much more disparity. You can't get much more daylight between those two assessments. So you see how, how, how easy it is for any of us, for any of us to lose our way here. We are in desperate need of these course corrections. Jesus, in essence, is saying to the disciples, look, you want to serve me? You want to serve me? You want to do the right thing the right way for the right reason? 
Start here. Start here with me. And stay with me. Start here with me and stay with me. The resurrection. Again, this is all crazy talk without the resurrection, right? But it's the most sane thing in the world given its reality. The resurrection, the reality of the resurrection transforms the devotion of our hearts, its extent and its direction. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before. I'm coming back to it. I think it was a few years ago. The New Madrid earthquakes. I don't know how many of you are familiar with with this. Um, Central Mississippi Valley, uh, December 1811 through March of 1812, there were a series of seismic quakes that were so strong they could be felt. Now, this is before the age of the seismograph, okay? So, when I say they could be felt, I mean like felt felt, felt in your shoes and in your windows felt. As far away as Washington, D.C., New York City, Montreal, that's how far away this quake was felt. Witnesses said that thousands of acres of woods were destroyed in that region. Five-mile-long fissures in the earth were opened up. Boatsmen out on the Mississippi River are on record as having said that there were waves going against the current in the Mississippi River for hours. The significance of the change to the landscape was such that the cartographers of the time had to redraw the maps. Get your head around that. They had to redraw the maps because the landscape changed. Friends, the resurrection changed the landscape. Throw away your old map. It's not going to help you anymore. It changed the landscape. The news that Jesus is risen punched a hole into the fabric of the cosmos. We can't live like we did before. It's a whole new terrain. We need a whole new map. That's how real, that's how significant this is. Uh, this is something, and that's true, of course, for not just an isolated region, for an isolated time, but this is true for everywhere and everything in every arena of our lives. No exemptions. The resurrection of Jesus absolutely transforms the devotion of our hearts to the degree. We're hearing the news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what but your Lordship could explain this? 
What but that you are risen and ruling and reigning over all things at all times? What that you are the author of life, the conqueror of death, our great Savior and our merciful King? We are all worshipers. We are all looking, all longing. May we land on you and stay there not in any kind of cursory or formal way, but truly, wholly, completely, like we see with dear Mary. With dear Mary of Bethany. As she leads the way for all of us here, breaking the flask and pouring it out. Help us see what she saw and do what she did. We pray in your name. Amen.